Roundtable Osteuropa. Ein Podcast des Zentrums für Osteuropa und internationale Studien. Hello and welcome back to the Zeus Podcast Roundtable Eastern Europe. My name is Stefanie Orfel and I will be your host today for this special episode where we bring you news from the Ukraine Research Network at Zeus. The Ukraine Research Network is a networking and transfer project funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and it was launched last year, November 2020, as a reaction to Uh, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a reaction on the academic, on the research sector, to strengthen social science research on Ukraine, strengthen its visibility and its impact and also its networks. And as a part of this project, Zeus hosts residential and non-residential fellows. So there are two fellows, Ukrainian researchers who come to Berlin, as well as providing support for non-residential fellows who work from Ukraine and conduct their, their research there. And today we are lucky to have two of our Ukraine-based fellows here in person. Welcome Natalia Zaika and welcome um, Anastasia Shurenkova. Glad to have you here with us. As I said, you are working, you're based in Ukraine, working in your projects from there. And I want to ask you a few questions, of course, about your work, but um, I'm also very interested in your academic backgrounds, as I read that you are both from very different fields, and I, I really would like to learn about that. So, Natalia, you studied philology, is yes, that right? Yes, that's correct. And Anastasia, you're a mathematician by, yeah. uh, by your yes, degree. Yes, math and marketing. That's very interesting. <laughs> So can you tell me, since the um, uh, unit program is about social sciences, exactly how you uh, came from your, your field to what you are doing now? Natalia, would you start? Yeah, thanks a lot. I got a bachelor degree in philology at Kiev Mohyla Academy in Kiev, one of the best universities in Ukraine. And then I got a master's degree in journalism, again at Kiev Mohyla Academy. So this was more a humanitarian field. Um, and then I was working for more than 10 years at the university called Kiev School of Economics as an educational administrator. So I do some administrator jobs uh, with the, working with students and professors there. And this uh, academic environment inspired me to study further. And I finished some courses uh, there at Kiev School of Economics on behavioral economics, on data analysis, on statistics and econometrics. So I didn't get a former degree there, but I, got a set, I took a set of courses there uh, that gave me the, some knowledge and understanding of uh, economics and uh, data analysis. And that's how I came to the behavioral economics field. I also, it was more like a self-education. I read some books and took some online courses on that. And I started developing myself in behavioral economics. Uh, I like it a lot. And uh, starting from the last year, I am working at the Institute for Behavioral Studies at American University, Kiev. Thank you. And we will uh, learn more about what behavioral studies or behavioral economics 
actually does. Okay. Um, how about you, uh, Anastasia? I graduated Kyiv Polytechnical Institute as a Magister of Applied Mathematics and the next year as a Magister in uh, Marketing. It was uh, uh, simultaneously, two courses simultaneously. And then I worked uh, a couple of years in as a journalist. <laughs> and uh, then uh, one of my friends from journalist field started to work in GFK is a big marketing marketing company that uh, had branch in Ukraine and I just thought wow this the work I always wanted to do so I started to work in GFK in in 2004 and uh, first I worked in uh, B2B studies as a marketing specialist and then shift to sociological uh, area so I I have a lot of interest in, in business studies and in so sociological studies as well. That's very interesting. I think it brings you also already to your project you are working on at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about the, this, the topic you are dealing with now? Uh, yes, uh, now I'm dealing with, with a topic that called as the state of Ukrainian business and its readiness to recovering and uh, to take part in recovering processes in Ukraine after the victory, I hope. So I believe that business is a very important part of, um, of the society and uh, these people who run, run their own business and or who heads of uh, businesses, they are the most active part of society as, as a people. So it's very important to understand how they feel and how to support, how to support them. And the second point is that the state of business affect directly at the state of people because the well uh, the well state of business, it's, it means there are a lot of good payable job. Mm -hmm. for people and uh, the better states of economics in general and so on mm -hmm. so um, and how do you collect data for this or what with what kind of data are you working with is it surveys or do you get uh, data directly from the uh, now I'm working in line of service that was done and is doing now in Ukraine because some not a lot but some organization continue to conduct regular uh, regular surveys of business and this data is open so i can gather it together and analyze it and see the similarities and uh, and differences in this data and uh, the main the main goal of my study is to bring it together and make the general scope of uh, of the state of business. It's uh, a lot of challenges on this way, but uh, in fact, I think it uh, would be interesting. Mm. Uh, that's the challenges was something I wanted to ask you about, especially uh, in times of war. I imagine there's a lot of uncertainty in this in this area. So, how do you? deal with that, especially in the economic sector um, that we are talking about now. How can you um, make predictions and uh, how do you analyze that? Oh, fortunately I don't make predictions. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> But in fact, the data I work uh, with is based on the direct survey 
of businesses in Ukraine that was conducted by telephone or um, by online forms, something like this. So I work, I'm working with the direct answers with uh, business representatives. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the point, from this point of view, how to serve businesses or people in Ukraine? Yes, we have a lot of challenges, but in fact, we still can do this job. We and uh, as a poll organization, poll institution in Ukraine, we will still survey people because, as we see, the response rate became even higher than it was before the war. That it seems like people want to talk about uh, the most important topic, even with interviewers. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, maybe we can uh, we can get back to this topic later on. Natalia, what about you? You're working in the field of behavioral studies in the institute for it at American University Kiev, as you said. Can you explain, if possible, in a few words what it behavioral studies is and how it works? Sure. Behavioral economics is the field with the main question how people make decisions under risk and uncertainty. So probably it's all the time we have to make decisions when we do not have the whole possible information. In real life it's just impossible to have the whole information, so we also (coughs) always have some assumptions or we call it shortcuts you know, how to make some decisions. It comes from the very small decisions on what to buy in the supermarket, for example, uh, to some high-level decisions. Should I marry or not? Uh, which university to choose? Should I stay in the country at war or should I evacuate? So very different set of decisions. Uh, we study that and we try to find the factors that influence these decisions uh, from one point, uh, f- from one side, On the other hand, we try to explore some very uh, topics that are very typical for behavioral economics, like risk perception. Do people uh, want to take risks or do they avoid risks? And what influence those? Under different circumstances, people might change. For example, I don't like risks. I don't uh, play at casino, for example. But under some, uh, some circumstances, I may change this. Or the issues of trust. Whom do we trust, like the president, the army, people around us, or other things, or other people. And uh, these issues of trust influence our decisions again. Because if I trust people around, I am more calm, I am more confident, I may make some decisions. For example, people who trust banking system, they go and put their money on deposits, right? And people who do not trust, they do not do that. People who do not trust their politicians, uh, they behave in a certain way. The issue of social norms, we also discover, that means how not the official rules, not official laws, but the social norms in your group, in your society, influence your decision. For example, one of the topics we are working on is the willingness to seek mental health help uh, during the war in ukraine it is not very socially acceptable to go and uh, to go to the therapist or psychologist and ask for mental health 
So many people do not do not do that by themselves because of some stigma and social norms. They do not accept that. So you will be treated like, okay, are you crazy? Why do you do that? And so on and so forth. Uh, so the social norms have very huge impact on what we do. So maybe I want to do this, but I know that I will be socially punished for that, and I do not do that. So here are some set of topics, ex examples of topics we do in behavioral economics. And it's very true, especially for men, if we can touch the gender aspect. For women, it's uh, more acceptable, but for men, it's totally unacceptable by social point of view. You mean mental health Yeah, issues? mental health, yes. Okay. To, to seek help mm -hmm. in mental issues. Yes. And especially for militaries and veterans. They are supposed to be like strong men who doesn't need any help. But today, this is the group who probably need the most uh, this mental help. And it is important to show them that it is okay to go and ask for mental help It is okay to receive this help, you will feel better, your family will be better and everything. So it is, for, for behavioral economics, the topics that I mentioned, this is the first step, we discover that. But what is the most important is the next step. We try to suggest behavioral interventions to change the behavior, to make it more socially acceptable and beneficial for the person. That's uh, what I was going to ask uh, next. How are you finding out these things? Um, so what, what methods are you, you working with before we maybe go to the next step? Is it also surveys? or? Yeah, we typically, do, we, do, we typically have two main instruments. This is the surveys, of course. They give a lot of information. And the other one is the experiments, or we call it randomized controlled trials. This is uh, similar to the medicine. It might be more... Many, pe many people know about these experiments in medicine, like we have new pills, which we do it to one group and do not give it to another group, and then we compare if it works or not. Uh, we do something similar in behavioral studies. So if we, for example, want to evaluate if some interventions will work or not, let me give you some example. I think that if in the hospital where many people come for a regular checkups or whatever to, to, for medical help, uh, we will uh, give them a booklet, a flyer, uh, with the information that they can also receive some mental help for free. So you can uh, go there, this is the number of the room or the telephone number, whatever, and then they will go and do it. Because my assumption is that people do not, go, um, do not seek mental help because they are not aware how to do that. Mm -hmm. Then I choose one hospital and I put these papers, these booklets with this information at the registration, for example, and they choose another similar hospital and I do not put this information there. And then after some time I compare if people from that hospital where I put this information, if uh, more people went to the therapist in those hospitals where I gave them this additional information. Or just call a hotline, for example. Yeah, or whatever is uh, written yeah. on this um, uh, booklet. Mm -hmm. So this is what we usually use in behavioral studies, these experiments we are trying to... Uh, so surveys is typically used to collect the data and to see what's going on, what people think about some issues. And w when we want to try some interventions, we do these experiments and try. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a complementary, uh, a complementary setup. Uh, yeah, so to I would say, say so. because we get yeah to to find out the trust rates and so on. You would field a survey, yeah. and then to find out how how that influences something else, you would go about um, doing yeah. doing that. You s you are currently studying war-related issues. You already gave some examples. You also studied um, how evacuation messages right. work. Or yep. is this something you are still still working on? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that? Yes, this is one of the topics I am working on, uh, working on for about a year already, and I continue with my team. We study the evacuation decisions during the war. So approximately last May, uh, we met in a small group of behavioral scientists, and we were talking about what's going on during the war. And we we noticed that some people do not evacuate from a very dangerous zones where the threat is obvious and, you know, it's from the distance it uh, looks very weird. Why don't you leave the city or the village where the bombs are falling on your head? Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we were interested and we tried, uh, we, we wanted to understand what drives their behavior, why they do not want to leave those dangerous zones And again, the next steps, could we as scientists suggest something that could help to, to, to persuade more people to, to leave? Uh, what did we do? We did a survey. We polled people in 10 regions that were either directly affected by the war, they were under occupation or the military actions were on those regions, or they were close to the borderline in Ukraine. So this is uh, north, east and south of Ukraine. Uh, we polled people there and we asked whether they evacuated or not during the war. And we did it after six months after the war beginning. So there was uh, six months that they made some decisions. In our sample, we had people who never left their cities. So they stayed for all the time. We had people uh, who evacuated and returned already and people who evacuated and did not return yet. So we looked at all those people trying to understand what is different between these groups, why some made one decisions and some others. What we found is obviously some demographic factors. Women with children were more likely to evacuate with it naturally. People who have cars, who had cars, cars is the best predictor of vacation decision in our study. So as soon as the family had a car, they were more likely to evacuate. People with uh, from large families were less likely to evacuate. So if you have many children or you have a huge family, like grandparents with you or whatever. So if there are many people in the household, they were more likely to stay in their, uh, in their houses. And what is, uh, let me add something, it is very important to say for me, even though in academic world, when you do not find the connection between the factors, it means you do not have some results, typically. But in this case, we didn't find that risk perception influenced the decision. And for me, it is a huge result, because it means that all people who stayed in their homes very well understood how risky it is. Mm -hmm. We asked them, did you agree or disagree that there was a risk that you will be killed, that your house will be damaged, that uh, you will be out of uh, food, for example, some different risks. And we see that people who stayed evaluated all of these risks very high. For example, uh, the risk of being killed, 90% of people who stayed in their homes and never left said that, yes, I agree, there was a risk for me. 
and nevertheless, they didn't want to leave. So it's not the risk perceptions that drive the decision to, to leave. And it goes to the next step. There is no sense uh, for authorities to try to persuade people to leave because it is dangerous there. You don't need to tell it again and again, okay, please leave because you will be out of water, out of food, you will, your house will be damaged. They know that very well. You cannot uh, know that because you live and you see all that. So this is not a way of good communication. You, you, do not, uh, you will not persuade people that way. But what we found through the experiment that we did is that giving people some sort of plan makes the difference. What I mean by plan is adding to this evacuation message a couple of sentences that you can go by bus from this point at that time or you can call uh, by this phone to sign up for evacuation. You will be taken to that particular place and you will be given that particular support, money support or whatever. So as soon as you not just try to motivate them because of some reasons and trying to suggest different reasons, you add this uh, practical information to the message, the willingness to leave increases. So this is our, our main suggestion for the local authorities who are in charge of evacuation people that you know, try to find it to persuade people that it is needed to evacuate, but give them some practical information how to do that and what kind of help they will receive. That's a very, very, very practical research outcome. So it's uh, yeah. really impressive how, how quickly this translates to, to real life. I have been thinking in the beginning, before we had this uh, conversation, how to connect maybe the two of you in terms of topics. And I was wondering, um, Natalia, you have been working on also decisions of uh, refugees. And um, Anastasia, you are working on the uh, Ukrainian, with Ukrainian uh, economic enterprises. And this is something that's probably very connected because, of course, the question whether refugees who left Ukraine decide to return or when and under what circumstances is very relevant for the uh, Ukrainian economy and for the for the outlook. So what is the situation there? How, how much do we know? And also maybe how is the uh, question addressed? don't know who would like to start. Maybe you, um, Anastasia. Uh, thank you. For, yes, I, I will try to start. The main question about refugees and EDP person in Ukraine is do they want to go home back? So this is the main question of all studies. What, what can drive them uh, to go home and what can prevent them uh, from this? And uh, the state of economics is an important factor And in fact, vice versa, the returning people home is a very important factor to develop economics. Because when there is no people, uh, there is no market, there is no demand, and in fact, there is no business. And <coughs> again, when people go home, the markets grows and demands growth and business develops. So it's very re related topics. The return of refugees 
to Ukraine and development of Ukraine business. And uh, again, it's the very important uh, if refugees who came from Ukraine to Europe and other country, if they can have a work in Ukraine, way payable, uh, <coughs> of course it should be well payable work. Mm -hmm. So it's important for them and uh, it's very Im it's important issues. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, perspective to find work is important for the decision yeah. to maybe go back or... And uh, on the other hand, it's uh, it's also very important for how the how the economy will develop, what the outlook is. So it's a little bit um, a, a circle. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, certainly it's it's a circle, and uh, we should seek some ways to solve it, uh, solve it properly. Mm -hmm. And uh, because if people will not come, for whom we should recover Ukraine? <laughs> I may add here. Uh, on one of the conferences on rebuilding Ukraine, you know, there are a lot of them, the first lady of Ukraine, Elena Zelenska, said, we should return, we should bring people home, and they will rebuild everything. So when we start talking about rebuilding Ukraine, we should bring people home first, and this is the task for the... And for again, the we should repeal to make them <laughs> yeah, go course. home, so... Uh, yes, if I may add to, to, to this uh, topic. Yes, we uh, we want to study their motivation to come back. I don't have, we haven't collected our own data yet, so I can share any results. But I'm following the news and the studies of other institutions. And from what I know is that, of course, for many people, the first a step or the first signal that they may come back is the end of military actions. Uh, the, the security situation, that's naturally, this is what they care about, first of all. Uh, but of course, uh, we couldn't be naive, and if the war stops tomorrow, it doesn't mean that, well, there will be huge lines at the war and many people coming back. Of course not. And there are, it is important to understand that to understand the motivation of people to return or not, we should study carefully the situation inside Ukraine, like where they can come back. Do they have homes? Do they have jobs, as Anastasia said? Uh, are they secure here? But on the other hand, we should, we should take a look at what the situation is in their hosting countries now. Do they have jobs here? Do they have a good housing here? Do their children go to school here? How well are integrated already there? And what support they have here in hosting countries? And of course, most people will compare their prospects in a new country and in Ukraine. And many people, it depends on what they are offered here or what they already gain here in new countries and what they can gain again in Ukraine. And this comparison will will be the main factor for making a decision: should I stay or should I leave, or should should I stay in a new country or should I go back to Ukraine? But the war is interesting. Let me say so cynically, from the from the academic perspective, because from what I noticed in my studies and from all the information I receive around, is that. For many people, uh, the factors to, for their decisions are not so much 
physical or tangible things, but intangible. Like, it's not only, do I have a house? Do I have walls around? Do I have a bed? But it's the feelings and emotions of being at home. And very often in many studies, we miss this. We never ask for that. We, we ask, do you have a job? Do you have a house? Do you have a car? Whatever. Do you go to school? But we miss these intangible things. But it's really what motivates people. It sounds uh, weird for many people, especially from, from the field who study, like, I don't know, money and whatever physical world around us. But people want, they say, I just want to go home no matter what. I want this feeling of home. I want to be in my city, in my home, in my bed. And the question of will be my job highly paid or less paid in Ukraine goes to the second place. For many economists, this is not uh, typical. They mm -hmm. say they believe that uh, this uh, the, this should be the primary factors. Uh, but that's what we see that being in your own environment is important. I may say uh, um, my example, if I may. When the war started, I left, I was living in Kyiv, and I left Kyiv on the very first day, on February 24th, with my family, and I went to Vinnytsia, this is a regional center in the center of Ukraine, uh, to my mom's flat. So we, we were living there in uh, good conditions, so this was the flat three, with three rooms, like we have enough space, I was with my mom, she helped me <laughs> with some practical stuff, like cooking or whatever. So everything was okay, but somewhere it was the end of March, probably beginning of April, I start talking that I want to return home. Even though the uh, safety in Vinnytsia was, it was more safer to stay there than return to Kyiv, because obviously Kyiv was always and is still a main target for Russians, but I, I say I want to sleep in my bed, I want to drink from my cup, I want to use my bathroom, whatever. So this is so irrational, mm -hmm. but this is important. And now for many people who are abroad or who are internally displaced people in Ukraine, they want to return home because they just want this feeling and this irrationality we also have to study and we also had to include in our surveys, in our polls, to understand this motivation. Yeah, this is the huge perspective for behavioral study. Exactly. <laughs> I almost envy you. It's exactly. probably very, yeah, very difficult uh, to measure. Also. Yeah. Yes, yes, it is difficult. Probably some people, uh, some, I don't know, agencies or institutions do not do that because <laughs> this is so much difficult to measure comparing to the, you know, level of salary. Yes, this is the numbers. But still, I believe this is important, and if I may add, I mentioned the survey that we did last year. Was, uh, we, we tried to find the factors uh, for evacuation decisions, and we, I believe we also miss these um, irrational or intangible things, because we asked about, did you have a transportation to leave, did you have money enough to leave, and whatever. But then, when I deep into this topic more, and I saw many many interviews, uh, even in on TV, in, in media, and reading some in-depth interviews with people, uh, I understood that uh, we should try to understand those irrational or emotional or intangible things that drive the decision, and we are now um, 
preparing for the next stage of this research and we will try to include this uh, you know emotions thoughts try to find out uh, this uh, irrational intangible things that are important for people's decision yes and i i'd like to add that our latest study that will be presented ne- next week proves what natalia said because we included this statement i just want to be with my family i just want to be home for edp not for refugees for edp from again and and this factor was the most important in the list and it was ranked much higher than the second important factor thank you and also thanks for sharing your story uh, we have talked about a lot now about your research about war related issues i wanted to ask you about how researching in times of war uh, works because you're both living in kiev you're both based in kiev right now How is um, the war affecting the way you work or can work at the moment? Oh, okay, can I start? <laughs> It's two sides of this question. Uh, the first is, of course, to have work is blessing. So you can distract from all this situation. You can run deep into my numbers and my data sets and my questionnaires and so on. Escape uh, from reality. Yes, yes, and, and, and escape this. Uh, so I, I have a lot of work now and I'm grateful for this. It's much better than just laying under the blanket and crying, <laughs> for example. But from the other hand, as my brain is my main tool in my work, I feel how I lost some concentration and I'm very easy distracting from from my work from for example by news or so on and it's 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 challenging because I need more time to concentrate I need to write down every task not to try remember just Uh, write it down and then check if I made everything I planned. Uh, so it's other style of work probably. Not such easy, not such smart as I used to be before the war, but uh, just more. I feel that I should be more, probably more robotic. <laughs> I need more, more support from, more, more technique support probably from myself, but just to have a habit to write all my tasks, to check all my tasks, to check if I write this letter, if I send this letter, if I answer this question, to uh, say to myself, please read it carefully, and more carefully than uh, you used to do it before so this is some another style to work but i hope that all who work in ukraine they manage to to do this work properly and uh, we we discussed with our colleagues in the office is the same same issues we suffer from but usually we somehow somehow deal with it Mm -hmm. if i may 
um, f from what I know from myself, from my colleagues and the people around, of course, the most difficult and disruptive times were at the beginning of the war, the first weeks, the first months, when the situation was so unstable and uncertainty, when no one knows what does it mean to live in a war, like you have never been prepared for that. Um, and everyone was thinking, first of all, about the safety of yourself and of your family, of course. Uh, then I would say when the Russian army went away from Kyiv region and from the north of Ukraine and the situation became more or less stable, from the front line was not moving so fast, it became um, easier to, to plan anything, just to go again to this working rhythm. And then the next period that was very stressful and disruptive and um, was uh, difficult to do anything was of course the uh, the end of autumn and winter when we had heavy blackouts and heavy shellings all over Ukraine. It was very hard from the practical point of view to plan anything because you don't have electricity for half of a day or, or whatever. Uh, in my house, the longest period when there was no electricity at all, it was three days in a row, almost 72 hours when we didn't have electricity uh, in my flat. Uh, even though then there appeared some schedules, you know, it was like these two hours you will have electricity, then four without, then two with, and so on and so forth. It became easier. You always compare to something before, and you okay, now we have schedules. It's much better than without, uh, even though the schedule is like literally two hours with electricity, four without, two with, four without. So it, it's not like something very entertaining, but it's better than without. So anyway, what I tried to say, that this period was really difficult for all people who were who are working and researchers as well, and of course all meetings, uh, you know, online meetings, uh, they are always cancelled and rescheduled because sometimes uh, the electricity is out, uh, even if it is supposed to be. Uh, this period was uh, really tough uh, for all of us, and then the spring came; it became, you know, <laughs> much better. We all, now we have uh, the electricity all the time. But, of course, these air alarms are very disruptive factors. So as soon as the air alarm is on, uh, you start uh, monitoring the news, what's going on. Are the, uh, the drones or missiles going to your city? Because we have, all have these telegram channels where they say that, okay, the missiles were already launched, so it should uh, reach Kyiv in an hour or in two hours. So we all have this information. And... As for me, at that time, I just cannot concentrate on the work. I cannot do some intellectual work because I'm monitoring the news and, you know, trying to understand, is it really dangerous for me here? Is it not? Should I do something? I typically didn't do anything, but still, you know, <laughs> mentally you are thinking about this news and thought about your uh, job. So this is very disruptive, of course, and it... Uh, it is difficult to plan your day because uh, you have some tasks for your day as usual, but then the alarm is on and uh, you have to take uh, take off the job and do something else. Or, for example, just from routine, um, from our daily routine, I'm planning to go to the supermarket, you know, and then the air alarm is on and the supermarket is closed. I cannot do it right now. I have to change all my plans and, you know, wait till it, it is open. 
oh, my child is not going to school because the ear alarm is on in the morning, then I have to rearrange my day because I was planning that he will be at school and I can work and he is not at school. So, of course, uh, this everyday uncertainty is very difficult to deal with. Of course, all people who are in Ukraine managed to do it somehow. We more or less know that, okay, it is possible that something will happen. Or during the May, the Key was heavily attacked almost every night and you know you don't sleep enough at night you wake up all the time of course you cannot be productive during the day as much as you would like to so this is a of course the the main factors during the war that prevent us from being productive from doing our job well and as for me again my personal examples that well i cannot deliver some results on time when promised or when agreed and this is one more next step of, uh, you know, of uh, stress because mm-hmm. I cannot do something as I planned and then I feel like the people around expect me to do something by, by some time, you know, and I cannot do that. Of course, everyone understands, but, you know, it's inner feeling that I'm not doing right, I'm not doing well uh, what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, uh, this is the, like the, the landscape. Of, yes, of the, the meeting deadline is the most challenging things and feeling guilty uh, because you cannot meet your dead meet your deadlines it's it's not it's not pleasure feeling well, <laughs> but i think that this war uh, made us more flexible so you cannot follow the sub plan you can adjust your plans for the situation and I I know that some people went to the metro station during blackouts when when electricity was always and uh, make calls and make online meetings from uh, from metro stations and uh, i myself went one time when i when i had urgent uh, meeting and i cannot postpone and cancel it so i went to metro and conduct my meeting from here well, you sh- I, I don't think, yeah, well, uh, you probably know it, but uh, of course you should not feel guilty. I think it's impressive that you are keeping up this kind of work at all. It's And I also I think, thank you for sharing, it's very important to hear about this side of research and not just to, you know, to get the results, and <laughs> um, but to know how, how it has been created also. So thank you also for talking about your projects and explaining it so well. I really learned a lot today. Thank you again for coming and um, to the listeners for listening and uh, taking part and um, talk to you at the next episode. Thank Thank you, you, Stephanie. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening.